So yesterday on the way home from Kansas City, it's like a three-hour drive, and I I ended up reading out loud for like a solid hour and a half. <clears throat> so my voice is a little worn. This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, I am with Reed Dent to talk about the story of the unforgiving servant and the end of bookkeeping and seeing our enemies as ourselves. I just want to say, Brent, uh, you've gotten really good at doing that introduction. <laughs> well, not only the end of bookkeeping, but the end of the series on parables. So Sad times. For now. Anyway. Sad times. Yeah. Who knows what will happen after this? Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's the end for now. And... Uh, decided to end it with this one, which I don't know, uh, for me. And I think for many people is an intensely personal, um, parable. It's an intensely personal topic, uh, the topic of forgiveness. And I just want to, uh, start by actually just acknowledging, I always like to acknowledge this whenever I'm talking to a group about forgiveness. Uh, and that is there, there is an inherent like difficulty in talking about forgiveness to a bunch of people all at once. Um, because for some people, uh, what, what kind of goes on in their mind is they're thinking about something, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, they're thinking about something relatively trivial, uh, and for some people, what they're thinking about is something that has like deeply wounded them. And so we talk about forgiveness, but the the things that go on, like the experiences that people have where maybe they are being nudged toward forgiveness are very, very different things. And some are very, very difficult to come to terms with forgiving and others are not so difficult. So I just like to acknowledge that straight up. Like I am aware that people are coming from lots of different places. Uh, I'm aware of the difficulty of uh, practicing forgiveness. This is like one of my life's quests with a certain personal relationship in my own life. Um, and just over many years now has been something that I've learned a lot about. So I just want to say that to start. Yeah. Good thing to consider for sure. But I think Maybe of the parables that we've done, um, like the Good Samaritan and the Lost Son are probably the most famous and well-known. Not that this isn't um, extremely well-known, but it's maybe a little bit of a like, like you don't necessarily see the power behind it as readily as you do the others. I agree. But then, but then you get into it and it's like, whoa. Totally agree. Or at, least, or at least potentially so. Yeah, there's, I think there is a, uh, again, as with a lot of these parables, there's a certain um, kind of snap reading of it that is apparent and it's not wrong. Um, but there is also something more uh, for us, something a lot more, I think, something that has radically changed um, just how I, how I, find myself like coming to a point where I'm able to forgive someone else. Uh, we'll get into that. Uh, yeah, but let's go. I think we'll go ahead and um, we'll do the first couple of verses here. This is Matthew 18, uh, starting in 21, um, just with the, the setup, because again, these parables, they're not existing in a vacuum. There are real people with real, actual, personal um, concerns that are coming to Jesus and uh, where he is responding to them with these parables. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? 
Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. I was a little bit surprised uh, when the, uh, is this the NIV, the new, N- the the more recent NIV, where it, tran- right. it translates brother as brother or sister, <clears throat> which I don't generally have a problem with. However, in this case, I think, I, I think it's very possible that Peter is actually talking about Andrew, his, his real brother. Um, which, you know, maybe he is, maybe he isn't. The reason why I think it's interesting to think of it, uh, as, as, as Andrew is because it becomes a more familiar situation to all of us. Um, you know how it is to be in a family, to have siblings, to have parents. And if there's anybody, uh, where maybe most universally we have to, we find ourselves commonly being in a place where it's like, oh man, this person upset me. Oh, they offended me. Oh, they hurt me. Um, and now I have to like come back to this place of forgiveness again and again. Uh, it's with our families. Not everybody is that way. Um, but I think a lot of people have that experience. So I like to think of this as Peter talking about his actual brother. Now he could be talking about just generally like as a, like we're talking in the abstract here. Um, and Peter's just kind of musing about the phenomenon of forgiveness. But to me, this carries a bit more force when we think of it as like, there's something going on under the surface here. I don't know what, um, but there's, there's some personal aspect, uh, of this for Peter. And this teaching does come on the heels of the passage about dealing with conflict, Mm -hmm. kind of a famous overly formulaized, uh, method for dealing with conflict. So, so maybe it's just like, okay, well, you know, at what point do I go through that step? And like, what, what point do I, yep, you know, yep. break off relationship and whatever. So maybe it's just a general, like Peter's thinking critically about what Jesus just said and said, okay, so what, what's the point where, where's the line where I actually have to go through that process? Totally. Yeah. He's just, he's keeping the conversation going. Um, and that very well could be the case. And then also I like to think of it as he's, he's, he's got something at stake here. You know, that's how I like to, I mean, it, it could be both. Yeah. That's why I like to read all the, all of these parables that we've been doing as like, just imagining this person has something at stake here is, is just the way I've been reading it. Um, and so he says, uh, he asked the question and then he offers an answer to his own question and he says up to seven times. Um, and he, it's possible that he's thinking of like maybe a teaching of Jesus that he's already heard. Um, in Luke, we get, uh, and Luke 17, we get Jesus saying, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. So it could be uh, that Peter is thinking of that. And he's kind of quoting Jesus' own teaching back to him. Um, it could also be that he is thinking of, um, it's possible that kind of the teachers of the day had already kind of had a ruling about this. Um, there's some stuff in the Talmud um, that it, it, it's based on Amos um, chapters one and two. There's the, you know, for three times I will, I think it's revoke the punishment, um, but you know, not for four. Uh, and so based on that principle, um, the teachers had said, uh, so the, the answer to the question is three times, three times is how many times you forgive your brother. And then 
uh, you, and then you move on and you do not forgive. Uh, now, I think that what I have found is the actual specific citation from the Talmud uh, was a bit later than Jesus, so I don't know if it is in play here, but it's it's at least possible that there is the discussion and there's an answer kind of floating around about this. And so maybe it's possible that Peter is, um, you know, seeing it as, yeah, the teachers say three, but I know you say seven, so is that what you're saying, up to seven times? Um, and then Jesus answers, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Now, if you're like me, good, uh, logic, rationally minded, uh, person that I was growing up in our Western tradition, uh, you immediately, like your knee jerk instinct is to turn this into a math problem, like 70 times seven. And it's like, oh, 490 times. <laughs> That's how many times you should forgive somebody uh, before like you don't forgive them anymore. Um, which I mean, I always, I, uh, obviously I don't think that's the case. I do kind of laugh even for those who think like, wow, that's like, that's just Jesus saying like a lot of times I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I live in a house with three boys who share bedrooms and 490 does not actually seem like that many times. Like I think we could, <laughs> we could easily hit that number in a few weeks. Uh, and so it's like, oh, so what you're telling me is dad, I forgive him. And I'm of course like a good vengeful brother. I'm keeping a diary of like how many times they've wronged me and I've got the hash marks and I've got this for, you know, it's four, seven, four, four, eight, eight, four, eighty nine, four ninety. And now I can be vengeful. Uh, that doesn't seem that crazy to me. Um, <laughs> I mean, it could be the, the 70 times seven could be the, uh, like the Jewish, um, number uh, what's, what's that? Uh, gematria where it's like the numbers have their own significances. And so you've got seven being like the number of completeness. And then you've got 70, which is like 70 times seven completeness of completeness, meaning just like Jesus is saying, forgiveness is always called for, um, which is cool. I like that. I th I do think forgiveness is always called for, or you know what else, Brent, you know what, you know where else we might find a, a meaning for this 77 times? Well, I'll tell you, listeners of Bema episode 121 will probably already know. Did they, did you guys talk about this? Oh, not only did we talk about, so we did verse by verse through Matthew, of course. So oh, we did go right, through the right, story. Right. But as far as this portion of Matthew 18, I think basically our whole thoughts on it were, um, I mean, we had a few things to add, but I think most of it was just pointing to your sermon from, <laughs> from I think Marty had just uh, visited you guys like within a few weeks of us recording that episode. So that's true. He had just heard you preach about it and, and we linked that. So I'll put, I'll put links to both of those, but okay. it's in the text. Yes, it's in the text, Brent. I got to do it, even though it's already been done. <laughs> I did it still. Uh, it's in the text. Uh, um, yes, I now remember that episode. Uh, Rev I think that was like one of the first times that maybe my name creeped in on this podcast uh, on a sermon that I gave quite a while back. Um, and, you know, for those who haven't listened to that episode or the sermon, you know, you're getting to experience the wonder of it being in the text in real time. And also that, you know, the rest of what we're going to be talking about is going to be covering a decent bit of uh, just the ideas that are covered in that sermon. Um, but nevertheless, it's worth a revisit. So it's in the text. And speaking of brothers, and again, this is why I like thinking of uh, it being Peter and Andrew, 
because the story that Jesus is hyperlinking to is about two brothers uh, that you may have heard of named Cain and Abel. Yes. Uh, so so let's go let's go back to Genesis four and get another story about brothers uh, and um, <laughs> I guess you could say it's about forgiveness or not. So we all know the story of uh, the two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain murders Abel, and then Cain uh, becomes kind of paranoid and terrified that uh, when like he's going to go out and somebody's going to know what he did, and they're going to take vengeance on uh, Cain for what he did to his brother. And then God's like, no, it's all good. Like, I got you. You know, that's a very surface level reading of that skimming over. But then we get to this interesting story when we get to the these genealogies uh, right after where we get the story of Lamech. And I wonder, can we pull that up um, and just kind of read and just kind of read uh, Lamech's speech that he gives to his wives from Genesis 4? Yeah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. 77 times. Just like what Jesus is saying here uh, to Peter. And it, first of all, I, I have to point out that I always think of Lamech talking, or Lamech, however you want to say it. Uh, I I picture him, it's just weird that he's talking about himself in the third person, um, and I, you guys know Arrested Development when the guy's like, Steve Holt. <laughs> I imagine Lamech getting done with this speech and then being like, Lamech. <laughs> yes. But he's, what he's bragging about is like, oh, a kid, a boy slapped me. And so I killed him. And <laughs> it's, it's like this, uh, this idea that there is a small infraction and now there is this absurd level of revenge. And he's using that to brag and say, so you know what? If Cain's vengeance <clears throat> was sevenfold, my vengeance is 77-fold. And so I think when Jesus is saying to Peter, no, it's 77 times. Uh, and again, I like the idea of recalling this story about these brothers. Like, hey, Peter, whatever whatever you got going on, um, you remember how that story ended, right? Like this cycle of vengeance that sets in when at whatever point, you know, we choose to stop being gracious. Uh, what what you get, the way that things go there, the way that things go in the world, a uh, story that we're all too familiar with is uh, this never ending cycle of building revenge for like whatever the offense. But I am telling you uh, that in the kingdom of God, what is called for uh, is absurd grace for even the biggest or most longest lasting violations. Uh, there, there never comes a point where we are not gracious or we, we should not forgive. Uh, and I think really is saying, you know, of course, this is the only way. Like, we, we know the story of Cain. We know the story of Lamech. We know where that gets us. The only way that things are going to get put back together the way that God wants them to be put to, back together uh, the world that we're actually trying to get to is is this the 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 inverse opposite of that story. So, not going to dwell any more on that. Um, let's go ahead and get into the parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. 
At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Man, yeah, this is a parable that is full of emotion. Uh, lots of lots of big emotion, I think. Um, so let's go back to the beginning. We got a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants, and this guy is brought before him who owes him, uh, as, as you read, 10,000 bags of gold. <laughs> Which is also, uh, I think, in the, maybe the reading that more of us are familiar with is familiar with is the the ten thousand talents. Mm-hmm. So just to paint a picture of what's going on here, and this is not probably, I mean, I'm sure there are going to be people listening who are already familiar with some of these conversions um, and just the outlandishness of this. Um, <clears throat> but you've got uh, you got daily daily wage is a, a denarius, and a talent was a, uh, I think it's actually a unit of, um, weight, it's, uh, and it's, it's equal to so many pounds of, uh, like silver or something. I can't remember exactly what the number is, but you know, one denarius would translate into, uh, I think it was, no, no, no. One talent I think was like 6,000 denarii denarii or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you get into it, basically basically the point is uh, that this guy owes like a gajillion trillion dollars or uh, something really silly. Um, you've got a note. You got a note here from this cultural backgrounds uh, study Bible. Yeah, which by the way, we've we've long recommended the archaeological study Bible, um, which has gone out of print, um, and and it seems like the spiritual successor to that is the cultural background study Bible. I just got a copy of this myself uh, in the last few weeks, and so I've I've only used it to study for a couple of things so far. Uh, but I've been very impressed. The notes are far more extensive than the archaeological study Bible. And uh, there are some some great things in there so far, including this note that Herod the Great's annual tax revenue was 800 talents. Like Herod the Great, who spent <laughs> unbelievable amounts of money on anything he could possibly imagine and want, like so far beyond anything that anybody else was doing, just lavish spending. And his annual revenue was 800 talents. So... <laughs> 10,000 is just, (laughs) it is this preposterous uh, amount of money. And they also note in cultural background study Bible that uh, the talent was the largest unit of currency 
and 10,000 was the largest numerical designation in Greek. <laughs> so it's it's basically like saying infinity. Yeah, like he he this guy literally owes the king all of the money in the world. Like the biggest number of all all the money that there is. This guy <laughs> which you know it's silly, right? Um that Yeah, in in attempting to think about it in like more modern terms, so I was looking uh, the cumulative wealth of the world's billionaires, which is, you know, whatever, another conversation for another day, perhaps hmm. somewhere in the order of 13 trillion. I think that number is a little bit outdated, um, but whatever, you know, yeah. it's still, it's preposterous. Right. So, so that consider that number. And like this guy's debt is 100 trillion. <laughs> and we're talking about a servant of a King, right? So like, who is this servant? Like if Herod gets 800 in a year uh, from tax, this guy is just a no-name servant who has somehow accumulated 10,000 talents, which just begs the question, like, what kind of a king would let this go on, first of all? Um, and yeah, it's absurd, but I think it also, like, if we think about that, if we're thinking of the king as the god figure, um, it points to something about... <clears throat> God. And if we, if we think of, I don't know how you want to think of debt, like in a classic evangelical sense, like you can think of it as like sin creates a debt, um, that there is, you know, there's a metaphors for that in the scripture. Uh, and so just the attitude that this King has toward, yeah, it's okay. Go ahead. And like, you can, you can rack it up, you can rack it up. And then also thinking about not just the kind of King that would let this happen, and I mean, you're like, if we're, if we're thinking about this in any kind of realistic terms, like this kingdom is going to be bankrupt, like long before it ever gets to this point, right? Long before one single servant can rack up all of a debt equivalent to all the money in the whole world, uh, this this kingdom is going to be in bad shape. But the the king seems willing to let it go on. Um, but then also thinking about the servant himself, like what kind of a servant is this? who would keep taking advantage of that, you know, whatever that loan system is. Like, certainly this guy cannot possibly have needs. It's not like, oh, I just got into a rough spot and I can't pay my rent this month. And so can you give me a little loan? Like this this guy uh, is willing to keep pressing and take as much as he can possibly get. Um, which then brings up questions for me. Like if I'm trying to get into the mindset of the characters in this parable, like what, uh, what does the servant think of the King? Like what kind of a man does the servant supposed the King to be? And I wonder if he doesn't think of him as like a little bit of kind of a clown, you know, or like an idiot, like, well, if he's going to keep giving it, then I'm going to keep taking it. Uh, and maybe therein, like the servant thinks that he has some kind of, I don't know, upper hand on this King. Like he is, you know what I'm saying? Or, or he thinks he has like special favor with the King. Mm. And he's like, well, I don't want to ask him or I don't want to say anything because I'll just let, I'll just, I'll just keep doing this. If he, if maybe he just really right. likes me or whatever, you know, <laughs> maybe he thinks yeah. he's, he's particularly special. Right. Yeah. Okay. But then, he, then he has the audacity to say that he's going to pay back everything. Yeah. 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 Which, which is equally as absurd as the amount of debt that is incurred in the first place. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So the next, the next little section there, he says that the servant fell on his knees before the king said, be patient with me and I will pay back everything. 
And it's like, really? Uh, you've already used up all of the money in the whole world. Like, where are you going to get any more to pay back what you owe? Uh, and then the the next very unbelievable part of this whole story is the master servant took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. <laughs> <laughs> He canceled the debt and let him go. Uh, and <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what? Um, okay, buy kingdom, buy world, buy world economy. Like it's all done. It's all, it's all, it's all collapsing. Um, but we're back to my my word that I love that where it says the servant's master took pity on him. Um, another way of saying that is that the king had compassion on him, which any listeners from. Uh, our conversations before from the Good Samaritan or the Prodigal Son will remember uh, that that word is splagnizomai, which is a fun one to say and to try to spell. Um, but he has splagnizomai. Again, what we said before about this word is that when it pops up um, in the Gospels, for one, it's always talking about Jesus. But when it's Jesus using it in parables, it's for uh, whoever the God figure is. And what always, always, always happens is that when uh, God is moved with compassion, God always acts to rescue uh, the person that God is having compassion for. And so the compassion of this master compels him to, I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd. It's ludicrous. Like there is no logic. There is no economy. Uh, there is no scale of value where this makes any sense. And yet the compassion of the master compels him to cancel the debt. What are the implications, the ramifications of that for the king, for the kingdom, for for anything? Like who knows, who cares? All that matters uh, is that the compassion moves him to rescue this servant who, I mean, I I don't assume that the king is actually dumb. Right. Like if we're talking about the God figure, uh, I think one of the things that Jesus does throughout the parables is it's like, yeah, by the by by any kind of rational logic, um, God seems kind of silly sometimes or seems kind of foolish. And yet that's only because our scale of value is what is messed up. Like God is God knows how things should go. And God is always like uh, God is always um, acting in harmony with like, you know, what is deeply real and true. And so if it's like, what is deeply real and true is to have compassion and to cancel this debt to rescue this person. And if we are like, oh, wow, that's so dumb. Like, what are the economic, like, it's, it's only because, yeah, sure. It's, it's in that light. Yeah. We look at it and it's like, well, what is this King saying to the other people that everybody else is just going to start taking advantage of him? You can't, you can't do that because of the precedent it sets. Yes. And it, it doesn't, there's no, there's no regard for the actual person involved. It's about the precedent. It's about the principle of the matter. Yes. And so that's where, okay, so Capon talks about, um, he, he points out, we have to remember that the king, like he, he observes, the king uh, keeps all of his reasons to himself. He does not explain, here's why I'm going to let you go. He does not attempt to explain how this is going to work out. He keeps all of the reasons entirely internal to himself. And I like that you brought up like, okay, so are other people going to start coming in and being like, hey. You know, what about, and I think the, the point is, yes, absolutely. Uh, and so what this amounts to, Capon says, is this is not just an erasure of one individual's debt um, 
and I mean, it's fitting that he, uh, Jesus selects like an individual who has the most debt you could possibly imagine. Um, there's not just an erasure, erasure of that debt because what that means is we're just doing away with this whole, uh, he says it's an end to bookkeeping. The whole system where we're keeping tallies and we're saying like how much this stacks up to or how much that stacks up to. Uh, now, if we're getting out into the wider theological implications, like how much your sin amounts to or that sin amounts to or whatever, like I don't care. We're doing away with all of that. Like it's silly to even think about quantities because that will never like that's never going to get us anywhere. Um, that is not the way. I, and Jesus is trying to like imaginatively do his systematic theology thing, and it's like any trying to count like what this person might owe or what that person might owe. Like all of that is nonsense now in this world because look, the king has taken even all like the most unfathomable but unfathomable debt you can imagine. The king has taken it, and it's like yeah, that's out the window. I don't care about that anymore. And so it's not just this one debt; it's that whole system where there could even be debt to begin with, uh, that is all now being thrown out. And all that really matters now in this, uh, in this world, in this kingdom is the master's compassion. That's really the defining thing. That's not numbers. It's not accounts and balances. It is the compassion of the king. And so (laughs) is, is our servant, is our man here? Is he going to understand this massive shift of the ground that is happening beneath his feet? Like, will, will this servant, uh, see like what the erasure of his debt means for everything else around him for the entire world that he's living in? Is he going to get it, Brent? I mean, you would, it's insane to think that he wouldn't. (laughs) And yet it's insane to think that he would. And again, I'm just going to put in this little plug for remember this is being spoken to a person with a particular personal concern. And I think like Jesus is saying, Peter, do you know, do you know who you are in the story? Like wink, wink. Uh, Cause you would think, yep, it's this guy's going to get it. And then of course he goes out and he finds, uh, I just, I picture this as a roommate. Um, and he's like, <laughs> uh, he, he's owed a hundred silver coins. Um, so it's like about, you know, three months worth of wages, which I just, you know, this guy has like not paid his rent a few months in a row. And this other servant has like had to kind of, um, back that. And I was like, you know what? Enough of that. Like I'm going and I'm going to get my rent, like my 30 bucks a month that has now accrued for three months. Like I'm taking that from you. And so he goes up and it's crazy, Brent. It's crazy. He walks up to his roommate who owes him this smallish sum of money. It's not nothing, but it's something, you know, it's not a ton. And like, does he say anything? Does he be like, he's not, he's not like, Hey, um, this is your last warning. Like this is your delinquent notice. And I need you to give me that rent money. Now he doesn't say anything. He just walks up the guy is like, oh, hey, man, what's up? And like before he can finish that sentence, the dude has his hands around his neck and he's choking him. <laughs> yeah, I kind of get the impression that he has like picked him up and has shoved him against a wall or something. Yeah, totally. Uh, he just shoves him against the wall and he just starts. I mean, I'm picturing like this is the big this is like an explosion of emotion. And I'm picturing him yelling like, pay me what you owe me. And and for those words to come out of this man's mouth uh, is like you said it's it's inconceivable. 
like that the idea of owing at all could make any sense in this new kingdom that this king has now established by wiping out this debt that was worth all the money in the world. How could this guy even think? And, it, and what it amounts to, I mean, it's like, uh, I mean, it's mean. Yeah, sure. And it's, uh, it's ungracious, but really it's like, it's like insane. Uh, it is out of touch with the reality that this kingdom is now operating in, which is where the king is like, hey, not worried about it. Not worried about the debt. And this isn't years later where where like the impact of his own forgiveness uh, has faded. It says he went out and found one of his fellow servants and grabs him. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's immediately like... And I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think like the, this servant is, he's kind of wicked. Um, like I think, I, I think he walks out of there and he thinks he's played the king for a fool. Like, I think he's like, yeah, I got off the hook, you know, just, just like I thought I would. Uh, and, um, I played that king like a fiddle. I racked up all that debt. I performed so well. Exactly. In my begging. Yep. And now I'm going to go to this guy, and now I'm going to start turning a profit uh, because my balance is at zero. Um, and it's also funny, like, I, for a man who had a, 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 a cum- cumulatively over the course of however long he racked up that debt, like, he had control over, like we said, literally all the money in the entire world. And now he's insisting on a hundred bucks. Like that means a lot to him after he has had a hundred trillion dollars at his disposal. Like this dude is, this dude is crazy. <sighs> what what can happen when we read this uh, is we can talk about it in a way uh, that accidentally trivializes some of the difficulties that other people have been through. Like whatever these debts are. Um, that we, you know, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's Tim Keller who talks about how, um, sin creates a debt. Like when we, when we wrong one another, it like creates a debt. There's like a hole or a wound that gets opened up. And there is a way of reading this parable at this point that would say, yeah, like, um, no matter like what has happened to you uh, in your life, no matter what somebody's done to you, your sin is like infinitely greater th- against God. You know, like what you owe God is infinitely greater uh, than what somebody else owes you. That all of uh, all of what anybody else could owe you only amounts to a hundred dollars compared to the hundred trillion that you owe God. Uh, and I, that makes me uncomfortable. Cause like I said, at the outset, like we got to remember that, um, forgiveness is difficult to talk about. Cause we're talking about like, if forgiveness is warranted, that means that wounds have, have been created. And my question, uh, I guess my, like, uh, my, I hope reverent opposition to what Jesus is saying here, or what maybe the way that we would read what Jesus is saying is, well, what happens though when the debt that someone owes me uh, isn't like three months' rent? It's not a hundred denarii. Like, what happens if, like, the they don't owe me a hundred bucks, but what if they owe me a million? 
like, what if we're, what if what I'm being asked to forgive is not just like uh, my roommate didn't do the dishes again and they left the sink full of dirty dishes that I now have to take my time, you know, like, what if we're not talking about that, but what if we're talking about like real serious, um, wounds? Like if we're talking about, uh, abuse or, uh, somebody being defrauded by someone else or, um, you know, like you can just imagine a lot of the horrors that we suffer at one another's hands. Like what then? Um, and this, does this parable like reach to that point? Um, and how are we to think of, uh, yeah, those who have suffered that way and how are we to speak to those who have suffered that way, um, about forgiveness? Cause I, I think the, the fact is, um, you know, and like you, some of the stories that people have had to live, it's like, there are some debts, uh, that can never be paid back. <clears throat> there are some, uh, there are some wrongs that can never be made right. There are some losses that can never be restored. Um, no matter like what, like if, if there's a perpetrator or an offender or a wrongdoer in a situation, even if they decided to change their ways and try to make it up to the person that they hurt, uh, there are plenty of stories where what they have taken is so great that it can never, never be repaid. So I want to acknowledge that. Um, and I, and I want to, uh, with that and with fear and trembling suggest, uh, what is a difficult, a difficult thing that I think I have realized, um, that I have had to wrestle with in my own life. Um, but maybe it provides a way forward for those of us who feel, you know, kind of stuck by how much we have been hurt and how difficult it is to be able to forgive. And I think this parable offers us maybe kind of two ways forward. So, so one way I think is to kind of come to grips with what we've already talked about. Um, and that is to, uh, to reflect on, um, the insane, uh, absurd, uh, grace that God has for each of us. Again, not saying that all wrongs are equal, um, but we all do have uh, things that we need God's grace for, for sure. Um, but also, not, not just that my debt has been erased, but also reflecting on what we've talked about, how this this whole system of bookkeeping has been like just eradicated altogether. And so what does that mean for the things that I carry? Um, the Like if I have a debt... Um, and like if somebody owes me a debt, uh, and there's, there is no way that it can be repaid and God has actually done away by his own compassion with that whole system. Like, what does that mean, uh, for what I'm carrying? Um, and the second thing is, I, I think it's found in the next verse. So after 28 there, uh, where the servant is grabbing and choking, um, his fellow servant, uh, 29 says this. It says, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. And I think that this is the deeper um, kind of truth hidden that was hidden in this parable for me. Um, so there is that more apparent reading that is, yeah, God has been gracious to you. And so you can be gracious to other people uh, or you ought to be gracious to other people. Yes, that is there. Um but then there is there is this that for me is kind of the the central 
um, I don't know, it carries like the central kind of gravitas of the whole parable. Um, because if we're listening carefully, when we get to 29 and it says his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Um, we've heard this before. Uh, and we heard it uh, back up in verse 26. Brent, can you read that? 26, he said, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. And who is that speaking? That is the uh, the original servant speaking to the king. The first servant. And so we get this parallel construction of these almost, two. Almost, almost parallel. Because he doesn't, because why? What's what's different? He doesn't, he doesn't say the word everything isn't there in the second version. It's not there. Um, but what you do get is somebody falling to their knees and begging and saying, be patient with me and I will repay. Um, and so, no, I don't, I, my, I think. My theory on that from our original episode was that he didn't say everything because it's not even that much money. Exactly. I, I it's think. Like, ah, come on, man, just be patient. Like I'll pay it back. Like it's not that much money. You know, I, I think that Jesus means to not draw, draw a total equivalence between the two, um, that there is like a distinction between this one guy whose debt is so much greater and the other. And yet they are also mirrors of each other in the falling to the knees and the begging and everything before that word, everything yep. is, is a peril, parallel. And so, uh, with fear and trembling, this is what I suggest to people uh, who are trying to find a way forward um, with forgiveness. Uh, the I think the the key that Jesus offers here uh, is that in this episode, in this mirror instance, we are given an invitation uh, with those who have wronged us uh, to see them as we see ourselves. Uh, when we look at those who have wronged us uh, to see uh, something of our own selves looking back at us. Um, and this gets into uh, like, I guess another way of saying it is uh, to believe that what is true, what I know to be true about myself is also true of this person who has wronged me. Um, and that is this, I think uh, all of us, have this kind of dual identity as both victim and perpetrator. And I think this is actually runs right to the very core of what it means to be a human being. Uh, and I think about the, the garden story um, with the man and the woman, call them Adam and Eve. Uh, and when, when God comes to the woman and, you know, after this, you know, the, the aboriginal sin of taking the fruit. And God says, what have you done? And I don't think God says it in an accusatory way, by the way. I think he's asking, like, what have you done? And what she says um, is, uh, in Alter's translation, he uses the word beguiled. He says, She says, the serpent beguiled me and I ate. And I actually hear that as two halves, like those are two... I, I read that as two phrases that speak to this dual nature of being both a victim and a perpetrator. And that is what I mean by that is uh, she was deceived and that is not her fault. Um, something uh, came in from outside uh, and it beguiled her. It tricked her. Uh, and that's real. And that's, again, that's not her fault. That's not her responsibility. Um, 
it's she is a helpless victim in that case. Uh, but then she also says, and I ate. And I hear that as um, this is something that I did. And I am a perpetrator in this way. Uh, I have um, crossed a line. I have done something I ought not to have done. Um, but it's not in a vacuum. Like we have, again, like the rugged individualists that we are, we're very like, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and everything that you do is your responsibility and your responsibility alone. Uh, and that is, we especially hammer that home when it comes to the wrong that we do. Uh, and we say, this is like, you've got to take responsibility for your mistakes. And I'm going to talk to that in a second. Um, and I think there is some truth there, but I don't actually think it's all true. And I think if you start asking the question, like why something, why somebody behaved a certain way and who is responsible for that, like, and you go back to, you, get, you keep going back in a life. Um, like we all begin, I think in a state of uh, like, we are, we are made good as we've talked about so many times on this podcast, like the story really begins with goodness, with us being made good and beloved by God. Uh, and um, we're not all like just horrible sinners when we are created. Um, and then something comes in that, that's, that uh, starts to twist our understanding of the story. We listen to that other voice, as we've talked about in the, in the Genesis episodes, uh, way, way back in the podcast. Um, and something comes in, we listen to the other voice, and it's almost like at first we are a victim of it. And then I, I always talk about this like Stockholm syndrome, where it's almost like we're kidnapped against our will. And then we live in that house long enough, we get twisted long enough, and, and we somehow start to think that that voice is telling the truth. And then we start to act in ways that are um, in concert with that voice. And now we are becoming um, like, I don't know, henchmen or cronies or like sidekicks of this wicked, of this evil that is outside of us, that's beyond us. Um, and we start to act kind of in concert with us. And I, I like that makes sense to me in my own life. I know that like, yes, I, I do bad things and I have done many bad things. Um, and I think that if I think about like, why is that? And I see the like complex web of cause and effect that my life is going all the way back. I see like there are um, things that acted on me when I was young that twisted my understanding of what good even was or what right even was. And when I think about, um, you know, like, I don't know, I, I guess it's, I think enemy is a really strong word, but when I think about my enemies or my enemy, maybe I only have one in my life. Uh, and I think about that person and I think about if I imagine them going all the way back, like, I, I don't think that they just woke up one day and decided that they were going to be, uh, that they were going to, you know, be such a way, be cruel, be malevolent, be wicked, um, that they were just going to ruin like my life in some way. I, I don't think anybody starts that way. And the way that that happens, like, again, is not like a decision. It's more like a twisting. It's a deception. It's a beguiling. Um, and that's, that's what I'm, that's all of what's behind when I, when I read this parallel mirror in this parable, uh, where this one is like that one. And I see that, you know, my enemy and I actually have a shared, not specifically, but there is a generally shared arc in the lives that we lead. 
which I realized is like, I, there is a scandal here. And this gets into the area of like, people are starting to read or think about the implications of what I'm saying when they think about it in terms of the ones who have taken the most from them. And I get it. Like, I, I get that that is scandalous. Um, and I think the way forward for us uh, is, I think what ought to happen more in our like broken enemy kind of relationships uh, is, is that the perpetrator, the person who has done the wrong, I think they, they do have to take responsibility. Like they, they shouldn't use what I'm saying as a pass and be like, well, it's not my fault. I was beguiled. Like, I think where, where the emphasis lies for the perpetrator is I ate the fruit. Like, this is my fault. I, I did this bad thing. I wounded you. I stole something from you. I wronged you in some way. And they need to be willing to accept that without pointing to their past and being like, not my fault. But I think the victim is the one who has to, uh, like, when, when I am in the role of the victim, I have to look at the other person and I have to say, I have to, by the grace of God, have the compassion to say, you know, I see how you were deceived. Like, I see how this is not all on you. Like, this is, there are forces outside of your control, outside all of our control in each of our lives that come in and they mess up the way that we uh, live. They mess up the way that we treat other people. And so, like, this is not all your fault, um, but I think what we typically see just goes the other way. I think usually what we see in relationships that have been broken by one person wronging another person is that the perpetrator is trying to skip blame and say, it's not my fault. It's not me. Like this is, there are all these other factors you have to consider. It's not my fault. And the victim is the one saying, no, this is your fault. This is all your fault. And that, um, just keeps us stuck in this cycle of, uh, condemnation and judgment, uh, and, um, not compassion. But but I think here in this parable, like when Jesus is inviting us to see, hey, that guy that you're choking out who has wronged you, uh, he is saying exactly what you have said before. Like it's a mirror, like you you should, the, I, I imagine that the servant has the opportunity to hear this guy and realize, oh crap, like that's that's what I said before. And I think when I see them like me, that we share something and it's not just they're this holy, other, monstrous, wicked person, then what that has the power to do is to transmute like my anger and my bitterness into something more like compassion. Like we've experienced, like Leanne and I have done workshops on forgiveness with people. Uh, and I've had people say almost those exact words to me as they come in uh, and they're feeling super angry and they're feeling super hurt. Uh, and then we go through, like, how do we humanize the person who has wronged you? And they say, you know, I, what I felt before was absolute anger. And now, like, I feel something more like uh, compassion. Oh, sorry. I'm just really kind of going on and preaching a lot here. <laughs> like, I'm looking at this text and like, I, I've been wondering if, if it is a chiasm at all. And if it is, it, it sure seems like the center would be the smug needs of my, mm. yeah. I I don't I don't feel like I have it like nailed down, but it, it if it is, I don't see how it could be anything else. Yeah, um, and so I think yeah, like what is what is the way in which um the compassion of God can also become my compassion? Um, how is it that the servant who was shown compassion can come to have compassion for another who owes him something? Um, and I always want to say too, uh, like it's worth a little clarification uh, when we talk about forgiveness of asking like what is forgiveness and what isn't forgiveness because again I recognize the extremely like personal 
uh, and loaded um, nature of this for a lot of listeners. And so when I am suggesting like, yes, we go forward with forgiveness, whoever has, whoever has wronged us, however they've wronged us, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying like forgiveness is not um, just saying like, it's okay. It's not like you're somehow now condoning what they have done to you. Um, it's, it's not also like, uh, forgetting, you know, like we sometimes like we say, like forgive and forget. And I, I don't think that when we are being asked to forgive, we're being asked to just pretend like this never happened. Um, we're not being asked to, um, just like accept it or allow it. We're not being asked even to like restore our trust in the person. Like forgiveness does not mean I trust you again. So like if somebody, I always use this stupid um, analogy that like, well, it's not stupid. It's outlandish. But like if somebody shot you and then you forgave them, you're not being like, and here's the gun back. That's that's not what forgiveness is. Um, And also importantly, um, forgiveness isn't just accepting that now everything is fixed or that there's no more work to do. Um, and it's not the same as reconciling. Like, uh, I don't know. I, I usually say to people, like, it takes one to forgive, but it takes two to reconcile. And forgiveness comes first and it opens a door to reconciliation, but you don't have to walk through, uh, like, both at the same time. Like, maybe it's all you can do to say, okay, I'm going to, like, by God's help, do what I can to forgive, but I'm not ready to, like, be your best friend or have a restored relationship yet. And that's okay. That's okay. We shouldn't rush those along. I think the Christian eschatological hope, like looking toward the end of things, is that, yes, all people will be reconciled, um, but that doesn't mean that happens right now. So here, here's what I think forgiveness is. Um, like we've talked about this idea that um, wrongdoing, wounds create a debt. Uh, and I think forgiveness is saying, it's first of all naming. It's saying, I know what you did, and here it is. And then it's also saying, and you don't have to make it up to me. Like, I'm no longer expecting you to somehow recoup what you have taken from me. Um, And I lean a lot on, like, Miroslav Volf here has written wonderfully about forgiveness. Um, He has a book called Free of Charge. He's written about it in other places. He's a professor, a theologian out of Yale. Um, I don't know if he's still at Yale, but he was um, before. And um, he said, you know, all forgiveness involves accusation, meaning you've got to say it. And, you know, that's in harmony with what Jesus has said actually just before uh, the the con- the contextual passage you were talking about, Brent, where Jesus, uh, he says, you know, if somebody has wronged you, go and tell them. Uh, and it makes me think maybe some of us are like too nice to be good at forgiving. Like we want to just do this kind of passive uh, head in the sand, like uh, it's okay, it's okay, because we don't want the confrontation but really forgiveness, like true forgiveness, I think kind of demands a confrontation um, where we have to say, this is what, like we have to drag it out into the light and we have to say, this is what happened and this is how this wounded me. Um, but then also to say, and you don't have to make this up to me, like I'm letting this go, which also like another way that Wolf uh, says this is he says, forgiveness cuts the tie of equivalence between the offense and the way we treat the offender. Cuts the tie of equivalence between like whatever they did to me, I am not going to treat them now in a way that is somehow proportional or commensurate with what they have done. I am no, and that's really just another way of saying grace or charity or mercy. Like we're going to treat them, um, I'm going to regard them 
in a way that is not equivalent with what they have done. I'm not going to see them in light of their worst faults. I'm going to try to see them in light of something else. Um, yeah, so I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, that's, that's kind of my best work at a definition of what we're saying when we want to forgive and we start that work. And I also want to acknowledge forgiveness is something that we do like one time, like we make a decision. I'm going to forgive. Like it's a, but it's, it's, it's not something that just happened once and it's done. It's more like this world that we're entering into or this road that we're going to start walking on where I am deciding I forgive you. And now I may have to day after day, come back and repeatedly remind myself, I forgive you by God's grace. I forgive you. So uh, we're going to move on to the end of the parable here. Um, Because what happens um, is uh, this guy is, so we got the second servant begging for mercy, just like the first servant did. And the first servant uh, hears this guy's pleas for mercy uh, and the the sad kind of hammer drop of this uh, parable is in verse 30, where he says, uh, but he refused. Um, He refused to have any mercy. Uh, and so then what happens is he uh, has the man thrown into prison and then the other servants see, and they go tell the King about what happened. And the King uh, calls the servant back in and he says, you wicked servant, I canceled all this debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? And his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Which is really like the first part of this whole parable that's even somewhat reasonable. Everything else up to this point is just absolutely absurd. Right. How did he get that much debt in the first place? How did he expect to get away with saying he would repay it? How did he get forgiven that debt? Mm -hmm. How did he immediately turn around and demand such a small amount of money from somebody else? How did he not accept that guy's begging? And finally, we have something that makes a little bit of sense. (laughs) Like this, this is the kind of response you would expect Based on the absurdity that that came before, if that's what happened, this is, I think, what you would actually expect the king to do to the first servant. You know, and I I struggle with this last bit. Um, there is part of me that feels like, okay, so if this is the God figure, suddenly is this God figure becoming like petty and vengeful? Um where he's now not like he's he's like, okay, well, I'm going to reinstate the system of bookkeeping. And now you're going to have to pay back everything you owe. Um, And I guess there is a way that you can read that, but that doesn't make a lot of sense to me in concert with uh, a lot of what else we hear about the the grace of God being an unconditional thing. Um, And so I think there's another way of reading it. Um, And that is like this master um, is basically just letting this guy have the world that he is creating for himself. Um, okay, if this is the way that you're going to live, this like if this is the way, if this is the world that you're going to create for the ones who have wronged you, then you also have to live in that world, which is you're going to jail too, uh, and you now have to pay back all that you owe. And of course, this guy is still stuck with the same debt. Like he's still like we know that he's never going to be able to uh, repay that. Um, but I I think the master is saying, yeah, that this is the life you have kind of consigned yourself to. Uh, or resigned yourself to. And so I am going to let you have that. And I think what's interesting is um, this idea about being the torturers. Um, He's handed over to the jailers to be tortured. 
I think maybe I'm not a hundred percent. I don't remember exactly, but maybe it's just he is handed over to his tormentors. I think is maybe the the literal there. Um, and I guess when I think about how that intersects with real life experience, it makes some sense to me. Um, and that is like when I refuse to forgive, and when I uh, insist on keeping this person. Um, in some kind of debt to me, uh, what I create is torment for, uh, myself. Like if there's a way in which when we won't forgive and we stay bitter, what we imagine is that we're somehow having power over this other person, right? Like, oh, I can really hold their feet to the fire. Like I can really make sure they know like how angry I am at them and how much they've taken from me. And I'm just going to keep giving that to them over and over and over, I guess, forever and ever. And it feels like we have power, but I think what Jesus is showing is like, it's a prison of our own making. Uh, And what that is, is torment. And you see, like, if you know anybody, and I do know people who refuse to forgive, um, it's like they are stuck in the past and they, uh, they are the ones who are actually being held there. And maybe like they're, the person who wronged them has like moved on. Like maybe the, maybe the, the, the perpetrator is like, they've come to grip. Like it's possible that they've come to grips with mercy. They have understood forgiveness uh, and they have moved on. And it's really just this, the, the purpose or the victim is keeping themselves there by choosing to not forgive. And again, hear me. Like I, I understand how very difficult forgiveness is. I'm not saying this lightly. I'm not saying like, oh, come on, idiots. Like you should just get on with it and forgive already. Like I understand that it is very difficult um, and I don't want to trivialize it or make light of it, but I do want to say that I think the end result of uh, choosing, because I think at some point it is like, yes, it's very difficult, but it is a choice that we make. Uh, At some point, what happens is we're just eating up, we're letting it eat us up and we're stuck there. Um, yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot more that could be said there and I want to be sensitive to the things that people have struggled with. Um, and yeah, uh, that's, that's my thought on that. One of the notes I saw on the tortured thing is, um, I guess there are some, some records of Kings who, uh, who did this where they would torture someone, um, in an attempt to get their friends or family to say like, Oh, uh, Oh man, I can't, I can't take you doing that to him. Like I'll pay it back and just let him go. Mm-hmm. And so it could be something like that, but this guy is certainly, I mean, first of all, we're still dealing with the absurd amount of money. Right. If we talk about all he owed, right. Um, although is it all he owed or is it all the second server owed? Um, I don't know, but we're, we're talking about this absurd amount of money. So it's not like his friends could pay it back anyway but this guy is also not exactly making friends the way he's operating. So it's, <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the, 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 the epilogue here where Jesus is now popping out of the parable and he gives a statement, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Again, there's a way that you can read this as like, uh, God becomes somehow vindictive or you can read it as like the way that the father is treating you is just kind of allowing you the, again, the freedom to live in the world that you are creating 
um, and which turns out to be like not a freedom at all. Um, this reminds me of uh, like, you know, Jesus, it even is teaching that he adds to the um, the Lord's Prayer, um, so-called, um, where Jesus adds in there that forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others. Like this is one of the, I think maybe the most radical thing that Jesus brings to the table that other teachers don't bring um, is this insistence on forgiveness and that somehow like my understanding of forgiveness, my being forgiven is linked with my practice of forgiveness. Um, and what I want to say, I, I, I Beekner says this better than I do. So I'm going to bring it in here to try to clarify just a little bit further, clear up some of these difficulties um, about how do we not see God as like, you know, somehow becoming the opposite of what we like, what Jesus uh, somehow becoming the opposite of what grace I think would imply that God is. And Beekner says this, uh, and he's talking about that section in the Lord's prayer that says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive uh, those who've trespassed against us. He says, Jesus is not saying that God's forgiveness is conditional upon our forgiving others. In the first place, forgiveness that's conditional isn't really forgiveness at all, just fair warning. And in the second place, our unforgivingness is among those things about us which we need to have God forgive us most. Too true, I think. Absolutely. Um, and then he says, what Jesus apparently is saying is that the pride which keeps us from forgiving is the same pride which keeps us accepting forgiveness, and will God please help us do something about it? So I guess that's my prayer, too, here at the uh, at the end of this episode, um, is would God please help us do something about how, about our unforgivingness, and whether that's because we're resolute and remaining bitter, or for those of us who actually genuinely desire to forgive and be merciful, but we have not been able to find the way uh, forward with that, uh, would God please help us do something about it? And just to kind of summarize, again, I think, you know, we can meditate on the grace of God for us and what that means for the end of a bookkeeping system. And I think we can also uh, try to be charitable toward the people who have wronged us. And uh, as I've heard said elsewhere, try to tell a better story for them. Like we don't know everything that leads to the lives that our perpetrators live. Um, and we can tell a more merciless story that just paints them as a villain, or we can choose to tell a more charitable story that sees them as just as complex and nuanced uh, as I know myself to be. Um, and so would God please help us uh, to be merciful and forgiving. I kind of wonder if the absurdity of this story is just like God and, and you know, is, is it a God figure because like God's clearly not going to torture people, right? Like, I, <laughs> like it just seems weird. And I wonder if the absurdity is just like, Hey, I need you to understand how seriously I take forgiveness. And it kind of reminds me of like Leviticus 10 with Nadav and Avihu. Mm. Um, and they, they offered the unauthorized fire contrary to his command. Mm. So fire came out of the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Mm. It's like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
for real? Like that's, that's what you're supposed to do. And it's like, well, I'm sure that lots of people have offered some sort of unauthorized thing before the Lord, something that is contrary to his command and they weren't consumed by fire. Hmm. But this, this first time where people are still learning how to deal with it, they're still learning who God is. They're still learning. And, and God is just saying like, no, this is so serious. Like, this is so important how you do this. Mm -hmm. This is not something to be taken lightly. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if it's like that with, with forgiveness. God is saying like, yeah, I realize how absurd these numbers are. I realize how absurd this story is, but that is how important forgiveness is in the kingdom of God. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, really like <clears throat> if you see it as, uh, I, I almost think of like this, the second servant is like, you, you have this power in you to not forgive, right? You have this power to hold it over them, but you are not able or ready to like actually deal with, um, like you can't harness that power appropriately. And then what happened, they, well, I don't, I don't know that there is an appropriate way to har to um, harness, like not forgiving, but it is a kind of power. And, and then what happens is, so he's, he's in jail, just like what he was doing. And, and, um, and it's, it is a kind of a torment. And again, like you, you can see it as maybe the master is torturing him, or maybe the master is just letting him go to, um, the, the system that he has already insisted upon. Like he has, the master has given him this way out and the guy's like, nope, I just want to go backwards. I just want to go back to this other way. And it's like, okay, but this is what's going to happen to you. Um, yeah. So I don't know. There's another, um, there's, there's some other ambiguities here that I'm not an authority enough on the Greek to really speak to. Um, but when it comes to until he should pay back what he owes and, uh, you can listen to this in the, the sermon, um, that I preached on it several years ago. Um, but that, you know, the, the pronoun ambiguity here, um, who is, uh, doing the paying, um, and to whom are they paying something? And even the notion of thinking of that word, uh, pay as remun remuneration, like you have to give back to, that's the, ob that's the apparent reading, give back the King all that you owe. But again, like, it seems, I don't know, that, that seems uncomfy for me to think that like. Now God is suddenly, re if we see it as the God character, uh, that he is suddenly reinstating this. Um, or like that word for payback could also be to like to cancel or to even forgive. Like um, it's, it has multiple uses. And so I, and I, I think this is the case. Again, I'm not an authority on Greek, but that we could maybe have permission to read this as uh until that servant should release the debt that he is owed, he goes back to, or he goes to the jail, which I don't know. I like that reading obviously a lot more. Um, I have consulted with a friend who is well-versed in the Greek and he said, yes, that's a totally fair reading. Um, and so in that case, I think what you see is the king hands um, this first servant to the jailers but it's almost like he's given a, a key to his own jail cell. Like when you decide that you are going to release uh, the debt or cancel like what you are owed, uh, then you can come out. Um, maybe. I don't know that that's the case, but maybe that's possible. <sighs> 
anyway, yeah, it's uh, this is the beauty of the parables. There is, uh, it's a house with a lot of windows, looking out a lot of directions, different ways to to read it. And I even say, I even think like us, like I could present my questions to Jesus, and he would say, "Well, I don't know. How do you read it?" Um, so yeah, yep. <laughs> uh, it's just like Jesus to do that to you. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love it. Okay, well, that does it for our uh, our little series on parables for now. Um, there are, apparently there's a disputed number of parables. The Wikipedia list of parables has 37. Yeah. But I've heard other people talk about 40 parables, so I'm guessing there's some harmonization disputes there or whatever. It's, I think it's, or it's like what counts as a parable. Um, right. Like yeah. when it's like, take the lesson of the fig tree and like that kind of thing is like, well, that could be a parable or that could just be like an illustration. Sure. Um, so I think there's some dispute over which ones actually count as a para- a form of a parable and which don't. But you know, yeah, there's somewhere in there, upper thirties. Yes. My point is we've done five and there are many more. So <laughs> it would not surprise me if we at some point came back uh, to this theme. For sure. Thanks for uh, being my partner here, Brent. This has been a good discussion. I appreciate it. Yeah. 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 My pleasure. Um, of course, we'll have, uh, you know, if it's, it's probably been a while since uh, you've listened to episode 121, unless you are uh, blazing through the podcast somehow, but uh, go back and check that out. Um, we talk about the full con, we, we talk about all of Matthew 18 in that episode. So that kind of gives you a little bit more of the context leading up to this story. Um, and then of course, check out Reed's sermon from a few years ago and, uh, the book by Wolf, if you're interested in that and, uh, yeah, plenty, plenty of stuff to dig into the parables. Um, we've, we've recommended several books along the way. Like, uh, th- there's no shortage of talk about the parables. I think they're a really attractive study subject for a lot of people for a good reason. And this conversation is illustrative of that. There's, there's just so many ways to look at it. So many things that we sort of like touched on, but didn't really fully explore. And, Mm -hmm. um, hopefully this is good conversation fodder for, uh, your discussion group or, um, whatever else. So enjoy the conversation, enjoy the wrestling. Mm -hmm. That's what I think. Okay, well, uh, hop on the Baymoss Slack once again. Uh, chat with Reed about uh, about your thoughts on this. I'd, I'd love to hear. I'm sure we'll hear from Brian David. <laughs> sure. Before I, as you were talking about parallels, I was like, if I don't say anything about a chiasm, Brian David's gonna be screaming on his uh, <laughs> on his walk. So, you know, throw that out there, and I'm sure he'll enlighten us. So check check that out. Um, and if you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him. On Twitter at Marty Solomon, I'm at EIBCB. And uh, all these links, everything else will be at BamaDiscipleship.com. So thanks for joining us on the Bama podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.